Welcome to Buddha at the Gas Pump. My name is Rick Archer. Buddha at the Gas Pump is an ongoing series of conversations with spiritually awakening people. I've done over 660 of them now. In fact, today's interview is number 666. And someone was saying, ooh, who's going to get that number? <laughs> oh, gosh. <laughs> <laughs> that number has significance, as some of you must be aware. But believe me, that these implications of that number are a far cry from the qualities of today's guest. <laughs> <laughs> so I've done a great many of them and hopefully will continue this whole program is made possible through the support of appreciative listeners and viewers. So if you appreciate it and would like to help support it, there's a PayPal button on every page of the website and also a page that explains alternatives to PayPal. So my lucky guest for number 666 is Anne Mathy. Anne has been practicing yoga and meditation for a couple of decades and has completed her master's in the traditions of yoga and meditation from SOAS University, which is a school of Oriental and African studies in London with ongoing Sanskrit training, and was inspired from an early age by her father's anecdotal experiences with Kundalini, which we're going to be talking a lot about today. Her own experiences have pointed her towards a phenomenological investigation of the parallels between spontaneous Kundalini awakenings and Buddhist paths to enlightenment. Her previous research focuses on the phenomenology of Buddhist and yogic experiences through practice and is currently researching spontaneous kundalini arousals and how these experiences map onto the path of realization within Indian, Buddhist, and yogic traditions, as well as cutting-edge consciousness theory. Her mission is to gain a deeper understanding of the psychological processes that can arise from spontaneous transpersonal experiences or deep meditation practice, and how we can safely support others walking this path toward greater wholeness. Just about every week I get contacted by somebody who feels they're going through some kind of kundalini awakening, and it's usually unpleasant for them, and they, they need help. So it's an important area. It seems to be widespread. Anne and I were chatting a few minutes ago, and she says she gets contacted all the time by people like that, too. So I think there needs to be a, a much more well-known support structure for people who are going through this stuff, and also perhaps greater knowledge, some of it cautionary, about the trouble you can get yourself into if you awaken kundalini prematurely or in some unnatural way. So those are some of the points we'll be talking about. And Anne sent me a really nice outline of points that she'd like to discuss. So we're going to go through that, but we'll also deviate according to the questions you may send in or according to any other thoughts that come to mind as we talk. Okay, so let's start, Anne, by just having you tell us a little bit more about yourself, what kind of experiences you might have had from your spiritual practice, which inspired you to focus so much on this kind of thing, and anything else you'd like to tell us? Sure. I'll start with my introduction to it was really from my father. From a really young age, about five, he used to sit me down and for five hours on a Saturday and talk about theosophy. Five hours? Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, but I loved it. I absolutely wow. loved it. I mean, I would just be like gripped listening with intent. And he went through um, a, a really intense experience in the 60s when he was, uh, he's from Glasgow. He went to Japan to train in martial arts when he was much younger and um, had 
a very profound, a very strong Kundalini experience, which he couldn't control. And so that took him on a journey with Kundalini. He was working with a psychiatrist initially, and the psychiatrist advised him to go and see this Zen monk who was also a scientist who was studying the Kundalini experience. So him, along with a few other people, were kind of being experimented on, or they were exploring this from a scientific perspective. With a, a doc, a Dr. Motoyama was his name. He had no idea what was happening when it was happening. He really struggled through this process and kind of studied it afterwards. So it was, a, it was an afterthought, his research, his um, looking into it. And so he really looked at it from the kind of uh, theosophical perspective. So they would see the Kundalini experience. They would talk about it as initiation, as initiation of fire. So when I was younger, he would talk to me about it in full-blown detail, the, the kind of uh, scary bits and the fascinating, beautiful bits as well. And I remember just listening like, wow, this is amazing. Yeah, completely fascinated by it. And I guess that's always been there in the back of my mind as a teenager growing up. It was always kind of there, but I got on with my life. And then a similar thing happened to me in my 20s. Fortunately, having had the backstory, having had been taught a bit about it, I kind of knew what was coming and took myself away from the judgmental eye or the white coats <laughs> and, um, and took myself to India and hitchhiking and took myself to places where I knew that it would be okay to, you know, go through the process without hindrance or without judgment or without, um, you know, uh, yeah, a, a safe place. I knew I needed a safe place. So, so yeah, that was really kind of in my twenties. And since then the the process has sort of, I guess, making sense of it, calming down, um, realigning myself to practice, um, grounding myself in the real world, you know, paying the bills, raising a child, <laughs> like that kind of thing. So, yeah, integrating those two worlds has been my um, work, I suppose, at the same time, research, bringing it to mainstream, bringing this phenomena to the mainstream Western world so that it doesn't get confused with mania or psychosis or some other kind of pathology, which it is not. I think some things can arise in the psychology which can present as psychopathy, but I mean, it's such a different process. So yeah, that's my mission. How can we bring this into the Western world? How can we further this with science and spirituality? I think that's one of the topics we're going to talk about today is the distinction between psychosis and a spiritual experience. And perhaps one of the things we'll throw in there is the tendency of intense spiritual practice to trigger an actual psychosis, which it can. It's, uh, some quote from somebody, I don't know who said this, but it was something like, the mystic swims in waters in which the madman drowns or something like that. And yeah. there's a fine line between yeah, the there can the madman as well. I've gotten a little kooky myself at times over the years. <laughs> <laughs> Still am. Well, yeah. I think a lot of modern psychiatry and what we deem as wellness or sane, I mean, and I would question some of the things that we consider sane in mainstream society. You know, there's a lot of very unhealthy, sane practices that people go through their lives on, you know, and it's only until they reach their deathbed that they sit in regret having followed those paths. So I think when we look at the wellness model and what it is to be happy, 
and healthy. And then you look at the spiritual awakening process. They're quite different in terms of how the psychology changes of what we're doing to our psychology on these two things. Yeah, it seems like a lot of the things that are considered sane are just ordinary and therefore customary. But in a really sane society, they would seem abnormal or subnormal or something. Yeah, yeah. That was the thing for me. I remember a trigger for the process, I suppose, or my in my 20s, when I really started to explore this stuff deeply. Uh, I did a sociology degree, and I just remember doing my dissertation at the end and just thinking, oh, my God, these are all just constructs. None of this is real. <laughs> this is all theory fabricated and pulled together, and we're told to live under these constructs, which, you know, there's a reason for them, obviously. We need some order in the chaos, of course. But yeah, I mean, I wonder how many of these constructs are helpful or a hindrance. Yeah. So you started some kind of Buddhist practice in your 20s or even sooner since you were exposed at the age of five to a lot of this stuff? Yeah, I was doing a bit of yoga. I was trying lots of different yoga, but none of it was really that helpful. I think through the process, I just had to sort of let go to the process. I was experimenting with all different types of yoga practices And I found them to really exacerbate the issue, like heightened emotional sensitivity or take me into worlds that I didn't understand and couldn't navigate. So after a while, I just stopped doing practices and just let the thing unfold. So something was unfolding even without practices? Oh, yeah, completely. Yeah, yeah, yeah. What was was that? You mean some kind of kundalini awakening? Yeah. Yeah, that took a couple of years to work its way through. So... That was when I had to sort of take myself out of society and go to India. Yeah, yeah, yeah. yeah. I'd really try to do some of these different practices during that time. And I found that they were actually not very helpful, quite uncomfortable. And then eventually I kind of came around to practices based on the yoga sutras, which aligned a lot more with calm, relaxed postures, nothing intense, nothing crazy. kumbakas or like strong pranayama practices and that was really amazing along with the moral path the yamas niyama that i found really really helpful just following the sutras working through the sutras making sure that i was pulling my concentration together working through any knots in my body and really kind of looking at my trauma properly but yeah i i suppose that was happening alongside buddhist practice so For me, the Buddhist practice came along and it was a real literal godsend. I remember, I think part of this process as well is it it does bring up a lot of subconscious psychological trauma comes to the surface. So I think there was a lot of anxiety or depression arising as well. So the Buddhist Vipassana was incredible just to kind of know, oh, my God, there's actually a way out of suffering. Like it does what it says on the tin, you know, like it, <laughs> it totally works. So for me, yeah, finding the Vipassana and concentration practices, it wasn't so much about I'm going to get enlightened and or anything like that. It was like, oh, my God, I need to get out of this psychological hell that I'm in. So for me, these techniques were a lifeline. And then later on, you know, I suppose you kind of like delve deeper and then start to experience or understand a little bit more about what these practices are actually doing psychologically or spiritually. There are several good points in there I'd like to discuss more with you. 
you know, they, there's all these funny words like a Hindu or a, a boob, <laughs> all these names that people make up about the blends of different traditions. Oh, um, <laughs> <laughs> right. right. So you about. were kind of a, a Hindu or something. I guess, interestingly, these two texts really work beautifully together. The Yoga Sutras and Buddhism in the sutras, there's quite a few nods to Buddhism yeah, in the text. Yeah. Like they're really, really compatible. But yeah, I mean, okay, so if I was to describe myself in terms of what practice or path would I adhere to, like my inner world is tantric, my practical practice path is Theravada Buddhist, my worldview is Mahayanan, my heart is Vedanta. So (laughs) (laughs) I'm not dogmatic. I've found that these teachings have just really helped my actual life. So I've never had a teacher. I'm not a part of a lineage. So for me, these texts have guided me. And I think I've probably always been a bit wary of teachers as well. I'm like, well, I don't know. I've kind of felt wary is the word, but I've never found someone like I've met people with Siddhi who have done things to my brain, but I've seen their humanness as well. And what I've needed guidance in is walking the human path. (laughs) Yeah, that's good. You know, there's that saying that we should dig one deep well rather than 10 shallow wells. But another way of putting it might be that we can use 10 different tools to dig one deep well. Some people manage to cobble together a really effective spiritual sadhana out of picking and choosing amongst the, the best of various traditions yeah yeah I mean it's a really I used to feel and my dad would always say to me just stick to one do it properly so when you look at the tradition it's like more than 2,000 years of evolution of revolution in different traditions branching off it's a really it's so complex when you say Vedanta when you say Buddhist or when you say Tantric all of these things sort of lay over each other and there are threads that kind of move through these traditions which all link up so ultimately we're talking about something human and natural and real and these traditions are just concepts and constructs built around the natural real human experience that is the potential you know enlightenment so for me in my heart I suppose I'm Buddhist they're my roots Dharma and my roots, that's what I always come back to. That's what I always feel is solid. Like I love the sutras because they're so pragmatic. The texts are just, you know, the instructions are right there. It's like follow the instructions and it works. I liked what you were saying when you were talking about the yoga sutras, about the ethical dimension of it. And really, I think that you find that at the foundation of every tradition. I'm certainly there in Buddhism, as, as you well know. And it's often overlooked these days, and especially like when you're talking about teachers and how you've never actually had one. In a way, it's a bit of a minefield finding a teacher because so many of them have been ethically compromised, even though they might have something to offer and some eloquence and even some shakti and, you know, a presence. Yeah, sure. Yeah, I think that's the thing, isn't it? We're complex. Yeah, was going to tell you this earlier, but um, along with a few friends, I helped to found an organization called the Association for Spiritual Integrity, which I'll send you a link to later. Based upon our experience with all these ethical violations that take place in contemporary spirituality and the, the hurt and disillusionment that it causes people, 
So anyway, I won't go into it at great length right now, but it is a, an essential component of the Yoga Sutras, as you mentioned, the, the Yamas and Niyamas, and basically every other tradition. Maybe you could elaborate on why you think that it's important. Oh, yeah. I mean, that's huge, isn't it? I think that's the central tenant of all practice. We're our own worst enemy, aren't we, when it comes to suffering? (laughs) So many times, you know, when you honestly reflect on your own decisions and your own choices, if you really, really honestly reflect on yourself, then you can see where stuff went wrong. (laughs) You know, and a lot of that is from ignorance as well, or not having the clarity in that moment to make a wise decision. But yeah, I mean, I think we have to, we have to start with that. You know, one sure way to know that you're developing on a spiritual path is that if you become more compassionate, more empathic and more forgiving, I think that in itself is one sure way to know that you're walking a good path. And I think that that comes about through moral behavior by looking at the way that you interact with people, the way or really reflecting on how you make people feel. That's going to evolve your heart allow for greater sensitivity. And not only that, I think when you sit and meditate, those things come up. So you can't really go into deep samadhi states when you've got certain hindrances that are rising in your brain. When your conscience is clear, it's really easy to slip into deep concentration states. It's much easier. So the moral path really helps in that. But I mean, that would be for a selfish intention. For a more altruistic means, that is the intention the whole intention (laughs) for the benefit of others. And I think it's not just a psychological thing. I mean, you can tell us more about the subtle body and how the subtle body can become a repository for all kinds of gunk that really impedes the clear reflection of pure consciousness. Yeah, totally. And and how the spiritual path in one sense could be seen as a a purification of the subtle body. Yeah, that's, that's huge. Like when you look at Sankhya philosophy and the gunas, I've heard you talk about the gunas before in, in other interviews. I mean, it's a major theme in Tantra. It's a major theme in yoga. When you look at the nature of thought, so we're talking about thought as if it's a substance, but in these philosophies, thought is a kind of vibratory substance and it has context, content, texture to it. And when you act, behave, think in a certain way. This is what you're producing. This is what's moving through your system. And and it is, I mean, this is huge in Buddhism as well, that kind of like mind-body connection. When you think a certain way, that's what's getting lodged in your body and you can feel it like knots in your back or a headache or tension in your muscles. That's the mind contracting and the body responding to that. These are a reflection of the type of thought. So a kind of a sattvic thought, a more lighter thought would have a clear effervescent quality to it, an expansion or a a clarity, a lightness, you know, like a moral thought will have those qualities. Whereas sort of selfish thoughts tend to get sticky and tend to have a gravity towards them, which ultimately does harm actual physical pain. Yeah. Speaking of the gunas, perhaps you can comment on how a more sattvic makeup is more translucent. It's more conducive to realization than a a rajasic or tamasic makeup. Yeah. So you're talking about prakriti, like shakti, the nature of reality, this matrix that we live in, the illusion that we're living in, the illusion that we have to navigate our way through, the illusion that we have to work with until we are 
genuinely enlightened bodhisattvas, we still need to navigate our way through this stuff, beingness. The, how would you say, the fundamental nature can be broken down into these three components, uh, rajasic, sattvic, tamasic. So rajasic has this sort of vibrant energy to it. We need it because it excites us and it activates us and it fires us up and it creates reaction and interaction. So we need rajas. But too much of it can make you angry, agitated or distracted. Sattvic is the thing that holds structure. So it'd be like, imagine a snowflake and its beautiful crystalline structure. That would be sattvic. So something pure, it's held, supported and light and balanced. And then tamas is the thing that makes things solid and real, brings everything into form. So we need all of these energies interacting with each other all the time to create this illusion that we live in. But what happens, the nature of the mind is that it continues to unfold and we get drawn to the materiality of the world through our senses. So, and that becomes tamasic because we have layers of thought that just build up upon each other, like these constructs that become real and that becomes tamasic that becomes heavy in your heart and in your mind that's where depression can happen that's where anxiety starts to happen so these thoughts just become so real that's the tamas you can overcome that by cultivating sattvic minds like so the food that you eat if it's alive that's sattvic so for fresh apple for instance that would be a sattvic food Behavior, speech, keeping clean, all of that stuff is sattvic. The words that you say, you know, are your words kind? Are they helpful? Are they support? All of that, all of that stuff is sattvic. So when you do that, you're like having a spiritual bath. You know, this is like, this should be your daily hygiene, psychological (laughs) clean. Yeah. And not only foods, but other substances. I mean, consuming alcohol, for instance, is tamasic and uh, yeah, certain drugs are rajasic and so on. If you took yeah. some kind of amphetamines or something, that's very rajasic. And all these things impair the nervous system's ability to be the temple of the soul, as Jesus put it. Yeah. And do you know, and that's, you know, it's interesting you bring that up actually, because there's a skillful way to work these forces so sometimes you might need a bit of tamas and you might need a bit of rajas in your system but again we have to be really skillful ultimately if we're trying to get ourselves out of suffering if you're in deep if you're like heavy with thought or the weight of the world is really on your shoulders how can you get through life without that happening at least once that's why the text the path they always say just do everything sattvic (laughs) just get yourself out of the muck and then once you feel that lightness come in and then we can sort of start to navigate skillfully through these different elements. We are flesh and blood as well. And I think we do need a bit of the tamas and a bit of the rajas, but yeah, in a skillful oh, yeah. way, it's difficult yeah, to, to In know. a balance. <laughs> I remember hearing a story. I don't know if this is even a true story, but there was some yogi in Rishikesh or someplace. And he was just, you know, gung ho living this really sattvic lifestyle, pedal to the metal, but he just wasn't having any spiritual breakthroughs or good experiences. And one day he got bit by a scorpion. And after that, he started having these great experiences. And the the explanation to the story was he needed a little bit of poison in his system. (laughs) Oh my God. Wow. That's an awesome story. Wow. Yeah. That's quite full on. I mean, you you hear stuff like that happening in (laughs) India a lot. Yeah. Well, yeah, definitely. I mean, 
that's what they've discovered when they research people. There's been a lot of research recently in Kundalini experiences. And what they've noticed is that a lot of this stuff can happen through trauma as well. So like a, a breakthrough or a spontaneous Kundalini experience can happen as a result of some big trauma. It's a fascinating thing. Like what is that trigger there that causes that huge spiritual combustion to happen within oneself? Do you have any comments whatsoever on the Aghoris who consume all this really Tomasic <laughs> stuff intentionally? I think they're just trying to yeah. freak people out. I don't know if they make any progress with know. it. But... I don't know. I met a few in India, but then, you know, you meet a lot of Babas in India and you never really know if they're for yeah, real yeah. Or, right. or if they're just <laughs> doing it for the tourists. I mean, I used to go up in the Himalayas when you go on certain pilgrimages, then you, you do see a lot of genuine Babas and they stay away from the touristy areas. But the Aghori, there's quite a few in Varanasi. So Varanasi is where the burning ghats are. That's an interesting one. The intention behind those practices are to overcome psychological rigidity. Or, you know, when you've been so institutionalized and so controlled and conformed and molded into a certain path, life is just like stuck, you know, or a belief system becomes so dogmatic. So the Aghori were like the rebels. They were breaking through all of the traditions. Because a, Brahmanical, a Brahmanical world is very pure, like no alcohol, no meat, no women, whilst they were menstruating. Traditionally very pure in the sattvic means we were talking about. So the Aghoris were like, this isn't spiritual awakening, you know, and they would rebel. That was the meat eating, the alcohol drinking, the sex, all of those things. That's one aspect of it. Could have just been a rationalization for doing all the stuff they wanted to do <laughs> well yeah there's that too <laughs> yeah, yeah i want to do what i want yeah <laughs> how about the sadhus who sit around smoking ganga i remember talking to someone years ago who spent some time with them in india and she felt like 99 percent of them are just stoners and, and there's not a lot of spiritual progress mm. taking place there i don't know i don't I mean think, to uh, make you comment on things you don't no, know about, but... no i mean I've thought about this a lot. Certainly I did as well. Like you go to India, you go to the Himalayas and there's a romantic idea, a delusional idea of it is an amazing place. It is seeped with spirituality and mystery and incredible beauty, you know, but at the same time, human beings are human beings. You know, even great spiritual teachers have a bit of desire, a bit of hate or a bit of fear still lingering until you're an arhant, which is why I'm fascinated with the buddhist path because it really does look at well how do you get rid of all of that stuff let's talk about some of the buddhist stuff because this is how you start the notes that you sent me we don't want to elaborate too much on things such that we don't have time to talk about other things but maybe we should skim through some of this you just used the word arhat so we'll want to define that and you showed me the terms uh, samatha and vipassana and neurodharma and then the question what is enlightenment in buddhism and what are the practices that lead to it Okay, so I'm really fascinated by this because now we live in a world where there's a lot of spiritual teachers, there's a lot of things, gurus and self-proclaimed enlightened people and all of that. So my interest is, what exactly is an enlightened person? Can you measure it? Can you tell when someone is? How do we know? People have full-on experiences all the time. People have very deep spiritual experiences through meditation all the time. These are becoming more and more common because practice is becoming more and more common. But my question is, what is the psychological transformation that actually does happen once you've been practicing for long enough 
or the experience lasts for long enough for that real transformation to happen. In the Buddhist context, an arahant is someone where there is no more hate, no more desire, no more aversion, no more fear, no more doubt to ever arise in the mind ever again, no matter what. So it's complete cessation of psychological suffering. Pain is still there. Physical pain is still there, but there's no psychological reaction to that pain. This is like what a Buddhist would call an arahant. I mean, in the Indian tradition, it would be someone who is not going to get born again, because it's that very thought process that makes you become born again. Right. And so all the things you just mentioned are outer symptoms. They don't really describe the subjective experience the person is having. But what you're saying is that whatever his subjective experience is, for it to be genuine, there would have to be an absence of hate and all the other negative things you mentioned. And if those things are still there, you can deduce that the inner experience is not yet mature. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, that's a full-blown arahant. They're rare. But in the Buddhist path, there's four stages to get there. Each of those hindrances, each of those psychological things will fall away one by one. There's an order that they fall away in as well. And they fall away according to a certain depth of meditative practice that you've come across. They fall away when you have seen a certain depth of the mind through practice. To me, that's fascinating. You know, like there's a lot of teachers out there who have Siddhi, powers, charisma, whatever, all of that. But still those things are working. You know, still the selfish or the the hate or the anger or whatever, that's still happening in them. And that's fine. That's normal. (laughs) It's very difficult to get to an arahant. Well, it's normal, but if they purport to be something super normal, then there's a problem. Well, yeah. Yeah. And usually those people don't really talk about becoming an arahant. It's just not, I mean, well, within the tradition anyway. But yeah, I mean, I think that's a really good sign. I mean, definitely loads of people don't have very much anger. You'd see them in a situation where you'd think you should be furious, but they're not at all. They're genuinely, uh, their heart is calm, peaceful. That's a good indicator, I think. What about people who are alleged to be enlightened? Sometimes this includes famous gurus who have a reputation for getting really angry at people, scolding and yelling at them and and yeah. stuff like that. Interesting, isn't what it? Do you yeah, think I about mean, that? so this often occurs in the Vajrayana tradition, in the tantric tradition, and a lot of that comes and in from, Hindu traditions too. Yeah, yeah, and and in old tantra comes from Pashupata tradition. The tantric practices where they originated from are quite full on. It's only after hundreds of years that they assimilated them into family-friendly practices, you know, and that kind of merged with Buddhism and then went to Tibet and where it flourished into Vajrayana. So there's there's a whole evolution of what Tantra is as well. And the behavior, it, when, hmm, so complex, but I would say that the there's a whole tradition of Mahasiddha. These are guys who have seen the nature of reality very, very deeply, have seen the disillusion of all illusion, have seen it, experienced it within themselves. And as a result of seeing it so clearly, those psychological hindrances no longer arise. So like a real bodhisattva, interestingly, when you get to a certain stage of insight, this is all kind of documented in when you go Sri Lankan Theravadan uh, monks, the abbot normally writes a kind of meditation manual. The abbot would be very experienced in meditation, and this would be for the monks. So when you reach a certain stage of insight, when you see the 
disillusion of the self, when the body starts to dissolve, the mind starts to dissolve, you overcome fear and those thoughts of nihilism and you arrive in the middle path where you see the nature of reality dissolving into nothing but arising again. Then if you've made a decision, I suppose, or a vow to help people, teach people the path, you can't go any further in your meditation practice. Because you'll just be too checked out to want to interact with people? Yeah, there needs to be an element that's still here of this earth so you can connect. But what happens to people when they have walked that path, when they've made their intention as a teacher or a bodhisattva, they become endowed with certain siddhi, the ability to see into other people's minds or hearts. And if someone very skilled in that is able to see the hindrances working through someone's psychology and they're able to skillfully say something that can just chop it away or dissolve it. But that comes through real deep insight. There's no games or manipulation going on. That comes through genuine insight into someone's psychology. It's born through deep practice of insight. And in Vajrayana, this would be the case. The Mahasiddhas have reached or attained that position. However, what you maybe what we have is a lot of people who haven't necessarily attained that insight and perform those behaviors, but are maybe doing more harm than good. Yeah. I mean, a broad question would be, how do students evaluate a teacher? Because many times a teacher will seem impressive, as you say, they might be charismatic, they might be eloquent, they might be a sort of a Shakti field around them where you feel something in their presence. And then on top of all that, there's some strange behavior that's going on either secretly or publicly. And a lot of times students will sit there and think, well, this seems a bit off, but hey, he's supposed to be enlightened and I don't think I am. And so I guess I'll just stay and sit here. And, you know, then sometimes these groups just go farther and farther off the rails because the teacher is going off the rails and the students just follow along. So I just wonder about how to empower students with greater discernment and to give them greater confidence to vote with their feet and leave if the situation warrants it, or stay if they genuinely conclude that the teacher has their best interest in mind and is not ethically um, compromised. Yeah, that's so important, isn't it? You hear so many gurus. All the time. (laughs) Yeah. (laughs) Yeah, it's dangerous, isn't it? In the tradition, you wouldn't take on a guru and at least for like nine years after watching that person closely for nine right. years. Nor would he you take know? you on. I mean, there's this sort right. of mutual checking out process. Yeah. And, yeah. Yeah. And it wouldn't be for money either. It would be purely for the love of freedom and liberation. I think if there's, if there's a lot of cash involved, I'm a bit wary, <laughs> but yeah, I mean, how do you tell psychologically? I suppose you can never tell where someone is at if they're more advanced a practitioner than you are. You don't have that insight to see beyond where you're at, where one is at. So it's always hard to say. That's why I like about the Theravadan traditions, because they don't have that guru lineage. Everyone is a friend. You know, you might have the most advanced practitioner in the room, but he or she is a friend. And that's how they, it's like a kind of uh, a linear. Nice. Peer yeah, to peer really kind of thing. Yeah, yeah, like what was that expression? We're walking each other home, isn't it? Right, right. Yeah, I I love that attitude. But interestingly, though, if that person has a lot of faith, has a lot of heart for the path, that in and of itself 
will transform the individual. So whether the guru is a real or a fake, it doesn't really matter. The faith itself can yeah. do that. So the student's devotion will carry them along, even if the teacher's kind of half-baked. But ultimately, you probably like, know the story of Eklavya in the Mahabharata. His archery guru was also Arjuna's archery guru. You know that whole story? It's, it's a great story. Huh. I don't know it. Arjuna had made his teacher, whose name Drovia, I forget the teacher's name, promise him that he would be the best archer, the best bowman. But this guy at Calavia came along and he's, he started getting really good and better than Arjuna. And Arjuna said, hey, you promised me this guy wouldn't get better than me. So the teacher sent him away. So, okay, I'm not going to teach this guy anymore. So the guy goes away and he, he builds a statue of the teacher and just worships the statue and practices his archery. And then he keeps getting better. So this gets back to Arjuna and he says to the teacher, you got to do something about this guy keeps getting better than me. And so the teacher goes to him and said, oh, if you're really devoted to me, cut off your thumb and give it to me. Mm. So he did. And that was the end of the story, but he, he couldn't practice archery anymore. So I know it's kind of a sick, sad ending, <laughs> but it shows that just through devotion to a statue, in this case, he was able to continue to advance. It's a massive motivator for the path. I think it's a really wholesome motivator, that faith or that love, the devotion to the path. Back to what you were saying about how, how can you tell if a guru is the real deal ultimately just in the way that any healthy human relationship you need to watch out for any red flags of manipulation or psychological torture i don't think we should feel weak we should feel empowered a guru should empower us but also help you honestly reflect on how you're behaving as well but i think you can do that in a loving relationship I don't think you have to be abusive. <laughs> right. Like you say, faith and devotion. That's what's so sad is sometimes people are just so innocent and even kind of naive and full of faith and devotion. And then teacher betrays them in some way or turns out to be a scoundrel in some way. And people have literally committed suicide because they were so disillusioned or at least left the spiritual path because to heck with it. If this is what it results in. So anyway, I don't want to dwell on this too long, but it, it's a little bee that I have in my bonnet, you know, and yeah, it's right. part of the motivation for starting that group, the organization, the no, it's sp important. spiritual integrity. It's really important. You mentioned money a minute ago about how it's, it shouldn't be about money. And it's interesting because in the old days, a lot of the spiritual aspirants were in ashrams or monasteries and the laity helped to fund that. And that was the setup. And these days, we don't have too much of that. And we're in a modern society where you need money. So that's a whole other issue, which has practical and ethical implications about paying for spiritual instruction. And some people feel that nobody should be charging. And I don't know, there's all these yeah. issues around it. It's interesting. I've thought about it a lot because we need to live, don't we? We need to pay our bills. Unless you go and live in, a, in the woods off-grid, totally self-sustainable, which is completely possible. We still need to deal with money. I was really fascinated by studying the historical Buddha. Like, how did he work with money? It's really interesting. Like, he was a canny businessman. Yeah, and he knew how to sweet-talk all the bankers and the kings. And Dharma got a To lot finance of the expansion of his teaching? Yeah, yeah, to build stupas, to build meditation halls. None of it 
went into his pocket. He didn't care for didn't the material pockets. wealth himself. Well, exactly. Right. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, he had nothing. He didn't need anything. So, you know, skillful ways to bring money in for the benefit of others, just in the same way a charity works for the benefit of others. But as long as that's wholesome and nobody's scrimping away for their own... Okay, we need our basic needs met. Of course, we need food to eat and everything. But I suppose it comes to a point where how much is excessive? Yeah. Just covering our basics is enough. If you're beyond needing materiality, then. <laughs> right. And is the teacher working the students to death in his or her ashram? There's teaching yeah. set up and then living high off the hog themselves. There have been situations like that where teachers are living really cushy lives and the mm. students are doing unpaid hard labor for many hours a day. How um, do they get away with it? It's amazing. I don't know. It's just one of those <laughs> things. Uh, but, yeah. Okay. So we talked a little bit about the different stages. We don't need to elaborate on too much and stream enter, once return and non-return. But I guess the point is there is a sequence of awakening stages or experiences on what we might call a gradual path. You use the word upaya here, which means skillful means. So perhaps we could contemplate that a bit and contrast it with my friend Raymond Schumann sent in a question about um, the neo-advaitans these days who seem to offer instant realization in their talks and who actually criticize any notion of a gradual path because, hey, ultimately we're already enlightened. And so how can you gradually attain something that you already are? And practices only reinforce the notion of a practicer and things yeah. like that that they say. And the world is an illusion and you have no free will and on and on. So how do you contrast this notion of a gradual path with direct realization? Well, People do have non-dual experiences where they're able to see into the nature of reality. And those people, they have a, such a huge satori or a huge awakening experience that lasts for a long time that they are permanently in that state. Yeah, I absolutely do believe that you can have that. And I don't know if they've maybe worked hard lifetime after lifetime. And this one is just, here we go. So I think it's possible. I think it happens. Within the Vajrayana texts, within the Mahayana tradition, there's a lot of expounding of the Tathagata, the Thaskon, the idea that we are already enlightened. A lot of these poems or stories are written from the perspective of a fully blown bodhisattva. There's a famous text called the Diamond Sutra. What it says in the text, you're not a bodhisattva until you have seen the nature of dharmas, until you have gone through the stratospheres of your own psychology down to the very, very, very core of what it is that makes you tick, the root of your desire and aversion is. And you've seen that arise from nothing and pass away into nothing. Once you've passed through the stages of terror, aversion, fear, from complete annihilation and you've come out the other side, then you're a bodhisattva, then you can say that, yeah, you're a tathagata, you're in that state permanently. So I've thought about this a lot and I've wondered, where does this come from, this view? And I wonder if it's because a lot of the texts would talk from the perspective of an enlightened person. That's one possible reason. So people are kind of going along with these texts or this teacher says this from the perspective of, of an enlightened position. And then other people are thinking, oh, that's how it is, yet haven't gone through those necessary stages. 
Yeah, I think that's really important. A description is taken as a prescription. Right. And, and it's like yeah. a guy standing on a mountaintop shouting out what the view is from the mountaintop. Right. It's, it's not necessarily helpful to the people who still need to climb the mountain. Right. Yes, yes, exactly. And I think that there's a whole bunch of practices. Wouldn't it be a shame if you thought that your whole life and you got to the end and you were like, oh, shit, I was supposed to practice. <laughs> <laughs> I can't speak for anyone else and I can't speak for the truth of how it is, but I can only speak from my experience. And my experience is that the practices have, have relieved suffering. The practices have taken me to places and shown me things that I never would have seen had I not practiced. They have permanently got rid of certain psychological hindrances, which psychotherapy did not, you know? So for me, the path really works. And for me, I want to be free of suffering. I want to be compassionate. I want to be full of love. I don't want my own ego biting at me as I walk through life. I, I want to be free from that. The practices work away at your psychology. They do work. And I just think that it's a shame if, if we never get to experience that. Thinking we're enlightened. I could say the same You'd be amazed to, to see what condition I was in when I was 18 and how starting a regular practice changed me. I was, I was a mess. Drugs and arrested and dropped out of school and all this stuff. And just, you know, regular practice turned my life around so nicely. So I'm kind of an advocate of it. And I just want to point out that a minute ago when you were talking about the Tathagata having gone through all this sort of deeper probing, you're not just talking about intellectual process of understanding things more deeply, you're talking about an experiential process as well. Yeah, particularly through insight. This was how the Buddha came to his realization, was through insight. He'd mastered all the samadhi practices, the techniques of concentration, which were very yogic, which come from yogic traditions in India. But he noticed, okay, well, when I come out of Samadhi, I'm still suffering. So I've still got those psychological things that are going on in me. So he found another technique, which was to look at a method into the subconscious. It's like your mind has stratospheres. And this is through sensate experience. So it's really fascinating. If you concentrate enough on sensation, just in one small part, you start to analyze your concentration gets stronger and deeper. You start to analyze the way sensation moves the way that phenomenological experience moves through your body through the flesh you know as sensation and your mind gets more laser beam in its concentration you can go deeper and deeper and deeper into your subconscious and interestingly all your stuff just starts to arise in your body and you can see all the connection of all your suffering but you're sitting there with an equanimous mind watching your stuff arise as you get deeper and as you look at that more closely so it manifests maybe initially as pain you know you get a really good massage and it's painful but it feels good it's like oh yeah that's good pain so it's like that because you're in an equanimous state you're not getting involved in the psychological suffering or that like like oh this hurts but you're trying not to anyway and the experience of that rising to the surface and passing away, you're watching it so closely and you're seeing how it changes all the time. And you, the more you analyze it, the more you can break it down into tiny components or parts. And you see that these parts are just tiny, tiny building blocks that just arise out of nothing and pass away into nothing. So the whole body is just like this arising and passing away of just little tiny molecules constantly. And that's transformative. 
that you're like, oh, my personality isn't even real. This isn't even real. These are just parts put together as like Lego. You kind of detach yourself. No, detach is the wrong word. It all loosens up. Yeah, it all kind of separates a bit more. There's no tightness anymore. It doesn't matter. There's a good explanation for it, which is that the mind and body are interrelated. So if the mind gets into a deep, settled state, yoga's chitta, vritti, naroda, the cessation of the fluctuations in the mind, then the body follows along and gets nice and deep and rested. And the body has a natural tendency to want to rid itself of accumulated traumas and stresses and so on. And so it'll naturally go to work doing that. And then you'll experience some pain or some this or some that. I remember I was on a two and a half month meditation retreat one time and I ended up having this really severe pain in my shoulder and I hadn't done anything to injure it, but the pain was just there. I'd I'd mainly feel it during meditation. I wasn't analyzing it into molecules, but just allowing myself to feel it, not distracting myself from it. And over time, it finally just dissolved. And then there was a feeling of, ah, something I had been carrying, whatever it was, why ever I had it, it was gone. Yeah, right. And that kind of goes back to what you were saying. It's like, you know, when someone says, oh, just let go. It's like, well, yeah, I would if I could. I don't know how to, yeah, you know, that body, psychological you know, thing. It, it grips yeah. the stuff. Well, if it's in your mind and it's going over and over it, you can't just let go. Maybe you can. But this thing, I think, through practice, that's the process. But also, interestingly, with concentration practices, It's an action. I'm concentrating. My mind wanders. I bring it back, keep doing that over and over again. Eventually it stays there for a while. But interestingly, the non-dual experience just arises spontaneously and naturally after the practice, like when you're just minding your own business and going about your day, because you've been training yourself to steady your mind and keep it there still. So it's not getting drawn into sensory experiences. The -hmm. mind is just steady. And then naturally that non-dual state just arises without effort effortlessly so for me i think the practice is really really important for that non-dual state to emerge you need to kind of create the container for that to arise and then everything dissolves from that so it's like you're creating more and more subtle containers until that that non-dual state and i just think yeah some people can do it without the practice but i can't these people are amazing if they can do it here and now and, oh, and maintain it. Just a week ago, I was contacted by an 18-year-old girl in Montreal who um, gave me one of the most beautiful descriptions of functioning in an awakened state that I've ever read. But she didn't quite know what was going on. And I talked to her for a while later and turned out she was basically born in a family of yogis, her parents and her aunts and uncles and all these people have been on a spiritual path. And uh, she obviously is just a very highly evolved soul that came in and she's just awakening naturally. Without uh, practice. Without practice. Wow. You know, she, well, you know, those verses in the Gita where Krishna talks about picking up where you left off if you've done yeah, a lot of spiritual yeah. practice and you don't. You know, what would they call them? Prachika Buddhas. The Shravaka Buddhas who practice the word of the Buddha you know, do the path from the canon, from the Pali canon. And there's ones that are just naturally know. They just crack on. I think that's the thing. That is certainly a thing. I mean, it's very hard to make absolutes in this topic. I, I don't think we can because experience is so diverse and so individual. The range of experiences, the range of how to get there, how to walk up the mountain is just so diverse. Let's switch the conversation to Kundalini. We should spend a whole hour on that. And a couple of questions of 
have come in about it, which I'll ask soon. Maybe we should start by having you define it, even though everyone's heard the word, but it would be good to have a definition. Okay. In a nutshell, it's a process by which an unfolding takes place in the human being that breaks down the compactness of the human being so that one's consciousness can connect to a greater consciousness. What do you mean by compactness and how does it break it down? Okay, so let's try to imagine the self just like a vehicle. I mean, the classic kind of analogy of car you know, wheels, engine, bonnet, all of those parts aren't the car, but when you put them together, we become the car. So we go about life thinking that we're just this whole thing, whereas in fact, we're a bunch of separate components working together to function as a human being. We get so attached to this collection of processes that work together, we forget that we're just a bunch of parts that come together. And as a result, you know, that becomes very tamasic. You become very kind of solid and believe that everything is real. So we live in this illusory. This is the um, sense of being asleep. There's so much tamas in the mind that we go about life thinking that everything is real, thinking your identity is real. Kundalini in its raw human form, it's like a force a power that brings the universe into creation that kind of erupts from within yourself and it breaks each part of yourself down so that you start to experience yourself as more than just one compact thing, but you are in fact connected and a collection of various things. You start to see the layers of yourself kind of unfold. And yeah, I suppose the experience, should I talk about the experience? Yeah, please. So the experience manifests in many different ways. The classic kundalini, I suppose, starts off with a heat erupting in the belly and sometimes spiraling, or it can pulse out like an electricity or an energy from the belly button area or the heart. And then fire can be blue, can be red, can be like a flamethrower, can be like a subtle energy moves up the spine. It can stop at the neck and burst out like light from the sides of the neck towards the head or it can just shoot straight out the top sometimes it's so subtle and delicate that one can hardly feel it sometimes it's so intense that the whole body feels like it's up in flames that's the classic version and as there are so many other experiences that happen as a result so ultimately it's a bit like pouring liquid fire through your subtle system and clearing out any blockages that one might have through the subtle body like the the nadis if we are to really geek out on this there's a lot of like so scripture would say kundalini is solar energy and it moves through the body some might say that kundalini is a sort of prana prana is in life force vitality there's a lot of discrepancies in the text when you really get into it i mean as well the word came about probably around the tantric era around 300 AD, and it's been changing and evolving ever since as Tantra has changed and evolved. Some attribute intelligence to Kundalini and actually refer to it in a feminine gender, you know, as a goddess of some sort who is intelligently working out our evolution by putting us through the fires of purification. Yeah, so within the Tantric philosophy, 
our whole universe is a structured symphony of sound. Everything is a vibration. Every stratosphere of our consciousness maps onto the universe in that structure as well. There is a, a form and a structure to it. And it's all vibratory. It's all sound-based. So the way the universe is organized through these stratospheres of vibrations, our consciousness is also that way. So Kundalini is a primordial sound that breaks through all of those other sounds and brings one into atonement, you could say. But yes, these goddesses, these deities, are a kind of personification of each vibration. These goddesses would be like an energy signature, you could say, for each of these vibratory components that make up our whole universe. So when you're going through Kundalini experiences, it is also common to feel like you're being possessed by a deity and to feel like something is taking over you. It's called a bhavana, like a, an attitude of that deity will just flood your whole being. And that could be devotion or fierceness or poise and intellect. It manifests as different states of consciousness. When I first started experiencing it back in about 1970, after a long meditation course, there were several strange symptoms. One was my face would go into these strange involuntary grimaces, and I knew what was happening, basically. And so it didn't scare me, and I didn't resist it, and I didn't do it in public. I would just sit quietly and let it kind of work its way out. And then also there was a lot of this sort of head shaking business, and I, I was driving an ice cream truck at the time, and whenever I settled down, my head would start to shake. And so I, I would sometimes come to a stoplight and my, my head would start to shake because I was just sitting there without... While you were driving. Oh, no. <laughs> <laughs> but then, you know, it passed. It, it cleared itself yeah, out. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, yeah. The kriyas, that can be a thing, right? Where the spontaneous kriyas, the body will start moving. And that's where the mudras come from. Initially, it kind of looks like jerky movements. But then after a while, refinement, they start to become very stylized. In tantric tradition, there's a practice called nyasa. It's a kind of ritual installation of the bija. The bija is a written signature of the deity. So you're kind of installing the deity onto the body. In tantra, the body is the universe. So you're kind of activating all these different parts as a vibratory experience of the universe. So yeah, like, so when you're experiencing those kriyas, eventually that does end up into those mudras around the body or clearing out. Yeah, that's it's really funny. I remember <laughs> just being at the pub with a friend and she just started writhing on the floor. She was going through it at the moment. I was like, oh, should we go? Or like, <laughs> <laughs> that's interesting. <laughs> I suppose yeah. they happen whenever they uh, want to. Yeah, I can tell you stories big groups of people meditating together and stuff and everybody's like it's some kind of like a epileptics convention or something <laughs> people all just go to flipping <laughs> out and writhing around and making weird that's noises <laughs> yeah that's great i love that and that's the attitude it is funny and it's okay that's the thing i think i think it does actually freak some people out of course especially if you don't know what it is and it just starts yeah. happening which happens to people sometimes they oh my god what's happening to me they right. run to the doctor the doctor doesn't know what's happening and sure. next thing you know they're on thorazine or something right and i understand that sometimes i think it can get quite vigorous and relentless and continuous and that is disturbing for people especially if you've got a certain maybe um religious conditioning you might connect that to a certain maybe negative thing as well. And that can cause confusion or someone can tell you that it's a negative thing. And then that can 
that can bring on a lot of anxiety. Yeah, you might think it's the fear. Yeah, demons coming after you or something like that. Right, right. Yeah, it's a natural process. I mean, like, you know, you look at nature and you see animals who experience a traumatic event, they shake. That's their natural responses. We don't do that. We don't shake. We just tend to store things in and kind of get more angry and bitter as we get older. So, yeah, it's really necessary, isn't it? Yeah, I remember in The Power of Now, Eckhart Tolle talks about how some ducks he was watching had a little fight and then they stopped having the fight and then they just kind of shook themselves off and then they're over it. They're just swimming around again. (laughs) (laughs) Nice. Yeah. Yeah. We we need to get back to that nature, don't we? Or at least get rid of any stigma around certain behavior, you know, in polite society, one should behave a certain way. Certain social boundaries are helpful and good to create harmony and, and harmonious interactions with everyone. That's the thing, isn't it? Being able to go somewhere safe where you can just let all of that unravel where you can be somewhere without any judgmental eyes where you can not hinder that process i think the more we let ourselves let go to it then the easier it is yeah on the first course i took with marashi mahesh yogi who was my teacher back then i remember him saying well i want to put you into really long meditation programs but they have to be in a secluded place so the public won't hear the screams <laughs> <laughs> Wow, that proper catharsis. Was yeah, that good? Did it help? Did you feel good afterwards? Oh, yeah. Yeah, so you got, got it out of your system. Yeah. There's a couple of questions. This is from someone named Sarah Page in Ascot in the UK. I had a Kundalini rising experience during a hot yoga class where I felt the life force rising. And as it reached the fifth and sixth chakra, which would be neck and forehead, The shaking started and continued for a couple of minutes, culminating in the urge to stretch my tongue far out, and then it all settled again. Mm -hmm. Does this indicate release of blockage in those chakras? Shaking fits around that area. Yeah, definitely. Or maybe the shaking was all over, but she felt the energy reaching these areas. And then she was wondering, like, how can she get it up to the seventh chakra? You can finish answering this other question, but also add perhaps an advisory against trying to force kundalini in any way as opposed to letting it naturally rise yeah yeah good question okay so this is speculation unless you've got actual insight you can see subtle bodies and you can actually you're there witnessing i would never say this is actually what's happening but my guess based on what i understand when kundalini reaches certain areas and that aspect of your being maybe has things to resolve then that can echo through the whole body you know so when that movement of energy reaches some kind of resistance that's the shaking that happens and yes that resistance it might be speech maybe that speech or resistance of speech or oppression of speech might have affected one to such a degree that it it echoed through the whole body in terms of how maybe that person was oppressed or abused or whatever, then yeah, the shaking will release all of that. And it does move through the whole body. I've never assigned a particular part to a thing. However, in certain Vipassana practices or mindfulness practices, you can go in and you start to feel vibrations or blockages unraveling. And when you step out of equanimity and you go into thought, you can see what those psychological things were. So yeah, they're usually related it's very difficult to kind of say precisely what psychological processes meets particular chakras. We must remember the chakra thing is a Western model initiated by Jungian theory. This isn't oh really talk it's, about it, it doesn't have a historical source. The emotional centers 
Sir Walter Woodruff brought these ideas over, who was uh, Arthur Avalon, who brought these ideas in Tantra over to the West with his book on Kundalini, on Shakti, on Tantra. He was this, um, he was English, but he worked in Bengal. He worked with Bengali scholars. He was a judge in India. He was so scientific about Tantra. When he brought that back, the West were amazed and adopted it. It's from one particular text. That's why the six chakra system is so popular in the West. It's from this particular lineage, this particular pathway. But he wrote about the glandular system being connected to the chakras and assumed then an emotional position on each chakra. So in Tantra, the chakras represent a certain tattva, which would be a layer of consciousness, a vibratory part of consciousness, a projection of a um, vibration of a particular sound vibration which brings together certain aspects of our universe. There's no mention of emotional states within that. I wasn't thinking of that too much. Sometimes you hear, okay, when the heart chakra opens, then you're going to experience a lot of love. And when the throat chakra opens, you may become more eloquent. And when the Agnya chakra opens in the the middle of the forehead, you might gain deep intuitive insight. And then when the seventh chakra opens, thousand petal lows, then that's enlightenment. Is that kind of explanation there in the ancient text or is this some kind of modern? Yeah, I mean, that's certainly, yes, yes, exactly. Yes, I suppose what you're saying, I've definitely seen that before in regards to the psychological processes that happen as each chakra opens. And yeah, they do govern certain functions of the person. Absolutely, like the capacity for compassion, the capacity for empathy, the capacity for forgiveness all of those things would be heart chakra related things yes absolutely i've definitely seen that interestingly when you look at the text they don't necessarily talk about those things but the commentaries on the text will talk about those things here's another question this is from rahul agarwal in chandigarh india would Anne suggest how to keep active kundalini energy manageable in awakened people with weak neural network or with an, a history of trauma? How far can people like me progress? A weak neural network, does that mean? I think he, maybe he's saying he has a history of trauma, which has weakened his neural network, and he wants to keep kundalini energy manageable. Maybe he's implying that it's sometimes unmanageable. And he feels like maybe because of his trauma and everything, his progress might have its limits. I think we tend to limit ourselves as human beings and our own psychology does that. I love the Buddhist part. The Kundalini is mapped out in the Buddhist path. There is a part of the process where Kundalini is situated. It's called the arising and passing stage of insights where all the Kundalini stuff happens in a structured path, in a structured path of meditation. So there's preliminary practices before you awaken Kundalini. We need to calm down the fight or flight centers in the brain before we start working on the subtle layers of our nervous system, because we're going to be bringing up trauma, which might often is fear-based. And so if we have learned to control the fight or flight parts of our brain through practices of loving kindness, self-compassion, cultivating a really good, strong moral foundation in behavior, doing all of these things which are going to create calm ripples in your world, then Kundalini is much easier to manage. There's not too many blockages to come up against. So I think the work really lies in getting yourself into a safe 
place first in relationships, in your house situation, in your work situation, your actual life, where you feel safe, get away from those toxic relationships. Because the mind is plastic, isn't it? We can cultivate different attitudes. So cultivating, firstly, care for yourself and then care for others. So this was how they would lay it out in the Buddhist path, you know? So we've got a really good, healthy ego before we start digging deep and pulling out the skeletons from the closet. I think that's probably wise. But as for healing, do you think that this is where the question is referring to as well? He'd have to tell us more, but I just inferred from the question that he has a history of trauma and is wondering how it might impede his development. I definitely think always work on the trauma. Always get yourself safe. Get yourself to a position where adrenaline isn't pumping through your system all the time. If it's happening spontaneously, then there's no choice. It's going to take you on that ride and it'll iron out those creases anyway. So that's good. You're sort of espousing a a slow and steady wins the race approach, or we could say safety first approach. Well, yeah, I think the ego can get really damaged. Like I've seen people get really gung-ho and these extraordinary explosions happen within the body, within the self, like really full-on experiences, just mind-shattering. But they've entered into delusions of grandeur or like a really unsteady sense of self and haven't been able to manage reality, keep their jobs or keep their family or do you know what I mean? And it's... Oh, yeah. Sure, we can abandon all of that and just go right straight for the (laughs) top of the mountain. Who am I to say one shouldn't? I just think there are consequences. Well, if you actually want to reach the top of the mountain and not fall off in the process of climbing, a lot of spiritual traditions place great emphasis on purification and becoming a well-integrated person, like you say, with a healthy ego and moral foundation and all that. For years, you might be mm. apprenticing like that in a tradition. Swami Sarvapiananda talks about how that was in Balurma, in the Ramakrishna tradition. And some young aspirants come in there all gung-ho and they just want to meditate 18 hours a day. And no, you have to work, you have to do this. And maybe 10 years later, you could get on a routine like that. But we're impatient in our modern Western culture. And a, a lot of people think that they can just take a, a heavy psilocybin trip or something or ayahuasca journey and awaken Kundalini. But the system can be full of impurities and, and full of hidden gremlins that are just going to come out and bite us if we haven't worked them out in a more yeah. progressive and I, way. And I think it's really important to just accept that that's okay as well, that we are full of gremlins. <laughs> that's really normal growing up in the world where we bump up against each other. Trauma's really, no, I suppose, you know, there's deep trauma and there's standard trauma. But yeah, yeah, that stuff is okay as well. Initially, I kind of got all, I suppose, I felt a really strong motivation initially, really, really strong motivation initially, like I was on a warpath not a warpath is in a bad way, like fighting or anything, but just determination, like such strong determination. I remember my attention and will being forged by this. Yeah, I remember Patanjali in the Yoga Sutras, he says, vehement intensity, those with vehement right, intensity, yeah. they're going to get it. Yeah, totally, totally. And and you know what, there's so many distractions on the path that it's kind of hard to, to do practice long enough and deep enough to really shift 
your consciousness in a way that does make permanent change. And we do need that like vigor and that passion and ardent devotion to practice. Otherwise, you know, the old yoga class a week isn't really going to do anything. We often say, oh, temper, temper, go, go easy, go slow. But we need some vigor. We need some of that passion to keep us moving forwards, to keep us driving through some of these really icky attachments that distract you, like your phone or nonsense on media. There's but you have constant... to pace yourself. There's that yes. popular saying, this is a marathon, not a sprint. And <laughs> right, you know, if, right, if you try right, to right. run a marathon and you're, you're going full out sprinting, you're, you're going to go a couple hundred yards and have to slow down. You and that's probably very wise. Yes. And yeah. I think, yeah. And yeah, you could probably say maybe I was a bit of a teenager on the path in that sense. Yeah, you know? Definitely. I've been there. <laughs> like, come on, <laughs> let's go. For sure. For sure. And I think for me at the time, I didn't have dependence. I didn't have a child. And there's no, no one. I mean, obviously other than my parents and friends, but I was happy to fully let go of yeah. everything. So at the time it was but now I'm a mother and that's my duty. That's my primary concern. And I need to keep my stuff together for my child. So I wouldn't do anything to jeopardize my sanity. No, or <laughs> your child. Right, Go make your right. own dinner, kid. I'm, I'm not finished I'm with meditating. my four-hour yeah, yeah. meditation. <laughs> yeah, exactly, exactly. <laughs> so closely related, we haven't necessarily finished the Kundalini topic and we can dip into it more, but we can intersperse it with some of the psychological challenges that accompany it and accompany the spiritual path in general. You sent some helpful notes on that. There's points about impurities of insight and stages of insight, dark night of the soul, distinction between psychosis and awakening, and you know whether spiritual aspiration can actually trigger psychosis, the difference between, you mentioned the phrase meditation sickness, and so on. So it'd be real interesting to talk about some of these things. It's such a fascinating thing that's coming up quite a lot. I mean, since mindful-based practices started becoming really popular and were prescribed as a means for psychological wellness for people what they were finding is that some people were getting really into the practice that they were starting to go through the 16 stages of insight so these are very deep insights that happen through vipassana and as you move through these insights you're faced with within hindu philosophy they talk about mara the illusion like it's a demon like it's come to feast on trying to throw buddha off his game yeah 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 so all of these as you're making progress on this path, you meet fear, like full on existential terror. But it's a necessary part of the path to overcome, to, to understand what exactly is fear? What is it? You know, and break it down. And that's a really important part of the path as well to let go of this thing, to understand it, and then to really let go of it, properly let go of it. The same thing with anxiety or doubt or hate or aversion, those things as well, they come up really strong so that the practitioner can examine it and understand the nature of it in an insight way, a deep meditative way, rather than just experiencing it psychologically in your day-to-day life so that you can really let go of it and then become a, you're no longer a worldling. That's what they refer to it as. That's when you start to enter into the realm of Arahant. So people are touching on these experiences when they do their mindful-based programs, but obviously terrifying it's obviously quite scary so that's why the path to enlightenment is quite different from what we would see as just get someone better because they're psychologically suffering so i suppose what we need to understand is 
bring the whole path over or look at the whole path rather than just a bit of mindfulness-based practices to get better. We're looking at the preliminary practices as well to secure that healthy ego. In my own experience over the decades and being around groups of people doing spiritual practice and now for the last decade interviewing all these people, I've seen many examples of spiritual practice resulting in beautiful things in terms of, you know, so many nice things, but also in some cases resulting in mental breakdowns or becoming extremely odd or eccentric or idiosyncratic. And I've gone through some phases myself, you know, which I mentioned earlier, I got kind of kooky on long meditation programs without enough integration and stabilization. I live in a town where several thousand people have been meditating for many decades. And I see some people around town who have just become so strange in their older age, really eccentric, fanatical, off balance, and yet they've been meditating regularly. So there's the the immediate thing of maybe having a psychotic episode on a long meditation course. And then there's the long range thing of how do we maintain integration and psychological health over the the course of our lifetime so that spiritual development becomes a, a blossoming of all positive qualities and our full potential rather than something which leads us into um, a strange mental state. Yeah, yeah. It's, it's really, really important to discuss this, I think. So in the tradition, when you're going through the 16 stages of insight, there would be a the abbot or the head monk of a monastery and you would be in communication with that teacher explaining where you're at the teacher would be able to recognize ah they're at that part of the insight process okay so i really need to make sure they're doing this this and this practice or really keep an eye on them really encourage them in this particular kind of way so they have what's called 10 impurities of insight that's one of the names that happens so especially when you get really deep in the practice or especially during a rising and passing stage you get a lot of kundalini experiences you start to glow or you have psychic experiences or the the, well i mean you know it's very in otherworldly experiences typically because we're human we start to go oh wow that's great i want more or that's amazing i'm jesus or whatever yeah and um i mean aren't, you know, I, getting, that, aren't I cool now I should, right uh... right and and that's okay that's really normal that's just what humans do because suddenly you've just had a mind-bending experience initially so what they advise is just okay when that stuff does start happening you just got to keep your mind equanimous so they call it the 10 impurities of insight because commonly people start to get very attached to those delicious experiences and that will pervert the psychology and it will start taking the person away from the path to developing and cultivating a a buddha type heart Um, so you're saying that different impurities of insight could occur at different ones of these 16 stages very typically in the initial stages of getting into deep meditation when you start having the kundalini experiences i mean Mm -hmm. some of the things that you like are real deep insight into scripture or understanding the path more or psychic experiences or visions that's important on one level as you embark deeper on the path but then those particular things usually happen at the initial stages the initial stages of insight i mean it doesn't always happen in a linear order that's the thing the impurities don't arise 
if you're keeping your mind just observing so okay what you would do in that situation if you started getting things of like pride come up whilst you were having a kundalini experience like oh aren't I special then they advise oh just note pride just be like oh pride's coming until it passes or just be really honest and note what psychological thing is arising as you're observing yourself having the experience there's always a commentary happening at any stage in the past, what the dangers are is really feeding attachment or aversion to the processes that happen. And I think, gosh, in terms of I know some of the quirky or kooky behaviors, I, I don't know in terms of if they last a long time. Seems like they do from what they I observe. Do. And I know people who have been kooky for years and they still meditate, but you go into the local grocery store and they'll kind of come up to you and start ranting and raving about some conspiracy theory or something or other, oh, you know, whatever, just off balance. And then you yeah. know, have examples of famous gurus who arguably were at a very high level of development. They certainly seem to make an, an impact, a huge impact on people who were doing really weird stuff behind the scenes, sexual misbehaviors yeah, 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 and yeah. things like that so you'd, you'd think that okay that must be an impurity of insight at a high level yeah yeah both hindu and buddhist i mean there have been many cases of buddhist teachers in the west crashing and yeah. burning yeah sure oh god yeah yeah i've heard some horrific stories i wonder as well this is why I like these traditions is because they've had over 2000 years of cultivating refining developing these paths and preliminary practices or methods to prevent these things from happening people for thousands of years have been intensely meditating and wandering off the path and exploring different psychoses that come up as a result of certain practices and so the tradition is various traditions whatever they may teach whether it's the yoga sutras the theravada path or the tantric path it's really important to look at the whole path because in that will be buffers or protections that will help you when you veer off or prepare you to go deep, you know, all of these things. These have been carefully cultivated over thousands of years, you know, of trial and error. <laughs> and I, I just think that, that there's something in that, that longevity, watching people come out the other side. Well, not me personally, but reading phenomenological research into arahants or their experience of becoming an arahant is very interesting in terms of how they've been guided through that to prevent these psychological processes. I think when you embark on it alone, it's hard. That's why it's so important to have a Sangha, friends, not necessarily a guru, but friends where you can share knowledge with each other and help each other out, reflect when we're behaving weirdly and your mates can just go, oi, <laughs> stop it. Yeah. So in your case, you mentioned you didn't ever really have a teacher, but I guess, have you had Sanghas? Yeah, spiritual yeah. friends that you oh of, yeah totally yeah. like my, my favorite thing to do is go on long walks in the woods with fellow buddhist mates and chat about dharma that's yeah yeah. <laughs> yeah yeah definitely throughout the years in all kinds of situations through sort of hedonism through practice through different traditions yeah friends have been very important in that did you say hedonism as in hedonism did yeah you, like kind you of went through um, a hedonistic phase yeah sure <laughs> Yeah, yeah, yeah. When I was younger. Yeah, yeah. I guess we all did. <laughs> Most of yeah. us. <laughs> yeah. Yeah, you get that out of your system, I suppose, don't you? Yeah. But yeah, I suppose that's the thing, isn't it? The attachment to worldly pleasures. I have this debate with some friends. They're not interested in the, the path to enlightenment. 
They're interested in different aspects of spiritual development. And I often have this conversation with friends about, well, I don't want to stop doing all the fun things. I don't want to stop enjoying the things that make me laugh and have joy with my friends. They don't want to, and that's absolutely fair enough. And I think what I'm trying to understand about this path is I don't think we have to stop having pleasure. The issues arise when we start getting attached to the pleasure. Also, the the Buddha taught the middle way, right? I mean, he didn't say be an aesthetic. And in Hinduism, there's a similar thing about balance and not being a hedonist and totally indulging and also not necessarily depriving yourself of, of experiences, but putting first priority on being established in being and then performing action and having action actually become more skillful by virtue of your establishment in being. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I completely agree. I know people who became monks and threw their robes in because they had strong desires arise and felt that the desire was getting twisted because it needed an outlet that hadn't run its course properly to fully renounce. And I think this is the sort of healthy thing to do. The yogis in India, to enter into brahmacharya abstinence, you have to kind of sow all your wild oats first. And then once you've got that out the way, then you become brahmacharya. It's unhealthy to become brahmacharya, so abstinent, unless you do that. I think the way they outline it is up until the age of 25, be a student, be a brahmachari. Then if you're inclined to do so, get married and go through the whole thing of sowing wild oats and having children and so on. And then when you get to retirement age, you go back into a more recluse life. But then people like Shankara say you could bypass the whole householder phase if you're cut out for it and yeah. go straight from the brahmachari phase to becoming a, a sannyasi. But if you're not cut out for it, that wouldn't be advisable. There's a Gita verse which says, because one can perform it, one's, one's own dharma, though lesser in merit, is better than the dharma of another. Better mm-hmm. is death in one's own dharma, the dharma of another brings danger. So again, in a way, we can be very adamant and diligent and enthusiastic about our spiritual progress, but you have to find your balance point beyond which you're going to actually sabotage your own progress by pushing too hard and not being who you naturally are, you know, being too unnatural. Yeah, it is, isn't it? It's kind of like tempering as you go, kind of really being honest with yourself. It's so difficult to make any absolute statements about such a complex thing. It's very much right. Yes. Like you say, we can deprive ourselves of things that we really need to nourish, <laughs> you know, to know, to bring joy or love, togetherness or community into our lives. Those things are really important. That kind of healthy connection to humans. That's super important. I'm laughing because I'm remembering some of the crazy things I did. I, I don't want to oh. talk about myself too much. <laughs> like extreme fasting and then gorging myself afterwards. Things like that. <laughs> um, yeah. Yeah. You got to try it all. Yeah. <laughs> Why not? Maybe that's not a sensible thing to say to, <laughs> to people, but I feel like the spiritual path is quite extreme for those who are deeply devoted. You don't have a choice. It takes over your whole mind and your whole life. That's just what you do and who you are. And you can go about pretending that you're like, I'm a normal person, but no, that 
thing consumes you all the time once that spark has been lit. Let's loop back around a little bit. So we've talked about Kundalini awakenings. We've talked about the fact that they can sometimes be scary or uncomfortable. And we've talked about the possibility of psychosis or instability or dark night of the soul and and all that. And you talked about how these traditions have safeguards to keep you on track as you go along. I was going to comment when you said that, that it seems like these safeguards are not applied as often as they should be. Like there's some kind of lack of oversight or diligence in many cases, perhaps because some teachers just don't have anyone keeping tabs on them. You know, they're the top dog and nobody calls them on their stuff. Big picture. What would you say about this whole consideration of safety on the path, not to slow it down, but to actually make it fructify as quickly and assuredly as possible And um, perhaps what could be done, you think, in contemporary spirituality to have more of that, to have it be less of a messy scene and more of a a wholesome, productive one? Okay, so I can only speak on behalf of myself and where I feel like I'm at in my path. And that is I've started to realign myself or cultivate right intention, focus on cultivating right intention more. So I'd have the idea I could go sit and meditate. But behind that is an intention. Behind that is an intention. Maybe I want to get enlightened. Maybe I want to polish my ego. Do you know what I mean? All those intentions. So I've really been trying to notice what's my intention to go and sit and meditate. And I've really been trying to do it for the benefit of others. So if there is a compassionate motivation, then act on it because that will amplify that motivation. So cultivating bodhicitta, whether you have little of it or abundance of it, I think it's really important to cultivate it, to, to, to let that grow, to feed it as much as possible, to let that be your navigator, even if it's sparse initially. If there is a, a feeling to go and help someone, go and do it. That kind of loving kindness path, that stuff is the most wholesome, most safe, most beneficial for everyone else. Who cares if everyone gets in line? What about the people who are still burning on the boat or suffering? This is the thing. There's a big whole movement in self-improvement and becoming amazing and hacking psychology, all of this stuff. And I think what we forget to do is cultivate selfless intention. That, I think, is the safest, most beautiful way to safeguard against. And you're protected. Can't prove this, but psychologically and spiritually, there's a protection somehow that happens when that is the motivation. That's a really good answer. And I wouldn't have anticipated that answer, but I totally get it. If it's sort of like enlightenment or bust, and it's for me, we've seen examples of people who become spiritually selfish and um, to heck with everybody else, my program, my meditation, my diet, my this, my that. Uh, And you, you end up with kind of a spiritualized ego or something. But if it's more on the theme of St. Francis, Lord, make me an instrument of thy peace let me sow compassion, let me sow kindness, love, etc., then it seems like that would be protective in the sense that it would prevent self-aggrandizement. It would prevent egotism, which pride goeth before a fall, you know, so it would help to prevent falls. Really good perspective. Mm -hmm. Good answer. Yeah, I mean, I think that, you know, that point of death, that's what gets evaluated. Uh, You mean? oneself one's own reflection process if one has the clarity of mind at that point what were your intentions more than the actions yeah 
some people say that who have near-death experiences that they they come back from the near-death experience saying that they were it was made clear to them that the most important thing in life was how much they loved mm -hmm. you know not certainly not how much money they made or right you know, yeah how, how much they meditated or <laughs> anything else. yeah and that's and therein lies the joy like that naturally just that generates joy like those behaviors those attitudes well that might be a good note to end on is there anything else that you know you feel is important so much <laughs> tons of stuff yeah <laughs> it was so lovely to speak to you yeah it's a great thing that you do here create this platform of different views and different ideas about such a topic yeah well i certainly enjoy it and people seem to benefit from it we were talking before we started the interview and i, I was just saying that I, i try to take a god's eye view of things in the sense that see the big picture i mean is incredibly vast universe we live in i love astronomy and cosmology and stuff and you know when you consider the number of inhabited planets there probably are trillions of them in the universe and in each one there are probably numerous spiritual traditions and religions and most of them feel like theirs is the only one or the best one or something and try to see it as god sees it all these things are paths up the mountain and people will gravitate to what works for them and so you know you just kind of have to appreciate all the paths and not compare and mind one's own p's and q's i'll close with a padmasambhava quote that i like a lot that i've said many times he said although my awareness is as vast as the sky my attention to karma is as fine as a grain of barley flour mm -hmm. i you like know, that so just being on your toes and uh precise i like and, that that's a good summary of, of everything so you're a mom you're a school teacher aren't you yeah part-time and then the rest of my time i study study and, and write and stuff you have a website i'll link to it there's some nice articles a little academic but interesting and educational and some interesting videos on there that people can listen to as i did so i will link to that If you ever write a book or anything, let me know and I'll I'll put it up on your Batcat page. Yeah, <laughs> brilliant. I should get on it then. That's a motivation. Thanks, Anne. And, Thank um, you. Thank you so much for having me. Oh, it was a lot of fun. I really enjoyed yeah. talking to you. And thanks to those who are listening or watching. And uh, we'll see you for the next one.